0: You're listening to Footnotes from the Sydney University Law Society. My name is Geoffrey Koo, and this is a bonus episode that we recorded last year about what the process of litigation and dispute resolution is really like. Julia Saab, Madeline Scott, and I got to sit down with Lucy and Daniel from Allens, one of Australia's leading law firms, to see how the process unfolds on a corporate scale.
1: Hi, I'm Lucy Zimdal and I'm a senior associate in the disputes team here at Allens. I've been at Allens for approximately a year and a lot of my practice is built around construction disputes, but I do do general commercial litigation as well.
2: Hi, I'm Daniel. I'm a graduate lawyer in the disputes team as well and I've been here for about eight months.
3: So how did you get started at Allens? So
1: previously I was at Allen and Aubrey in London and last year I started looking overseas. I wanted a a change, I wanted to broaden out my practice and and be less niche as a commercial litigator and I was also really interested in construction work and construction arbitration so Australia is a great place to practice in that field so I moved over last year and I've almost been at Allen's for about a year now.
2: So I entered through the graduate program so I didn't do a clunk but I came in afterwards. Previously I'd worked as a paralegal and worked for a Silk so I came to
4: What does an average day for you look like?
1: So I probably spend a lot less time in court or in a mediation or at a hearing for an arbitration than people might imagine. But on the flip side of that, I probably spend a lot less time at my desk in front of a computer than you would imagine as well. So a lot of my day is meetings, and that might be meetings with barristers, with clients, with internal team members. And a lot of my day is emails back and forth. There's a lot of project management, kind of circling around in the team, checking up on progress, delegating tasks. And then there is some time, obviously, at your desk where you are drafting, for example. So you're writing witness statements or pleadings. So yeah, in summary, I think it's, um, it's less of a desk job than people imagine, but there, are, it's you know, I would think I'm in the office 90% of the time. Every litigation is different. You have a different cast of characters, different witnesses, um, you have different industries and sectors. So you know, one day you might be doing something for a rail college company and the next day you might be doing something for um, a toll motorway operator. The next day you might be doing something for a telecoms company. So it will be a different experience every time. And so you can't rely on previous kind of work that you have done in other matters. What we do, I like to kind of explain it as almost creative writing, because you'll be sitting down and helping to draft a witness statement or a pleading, and every single one will be absolutely unique to that particular dispute and that particular client.
2: I think not much of the job is paperwork, but a lot of the products you produce are. So you can put a lot of work interviewing witness and then reviewing transcripts and then sort of reviewing that in comparison with documents, but you'll end up creating a witness statement because obviously a lot of your skills are in analysis and writing. My typical day really depends on what's happening at the moment. Sometimes you'll be working on like seven matters at once and you'll be doing little pieces here and there for each matter, but then sometimes you'll just have one big task which needs to be done and so you can you'll be just chipping away at that the whole day.
1: Yeah, and, and there's, it, I think it's fair to say there's a lot of our day as well or our weeks that uh, we're doing training and we're doing pro bono events, um, diversity and inclusion type events.
2: There is a lot of um, training, especially if you're a grad like I am, there is a lot of training which goes into you think of skills while you're... So it's kind of practical experience. There's also um, educational experience which is can as well.
4: Right, that's an interesting concept actually. How much, how many opportunities are there for pro bono work?
1: Oh, a lot. Um, the thing I think is really interesting and again, Aware of or imagine is that you have to treat and you are encouraged to treat your pro bono workload very much on par with all your billable client work. So, you know, pro bono matters have their own challenges and demands and they have their own deadlines. I think it's really good that you get given the bandwidth to, to accommodate that equally. For example, at Allen's, there's a big focus on working with the homeless persons legal service, um, giving pro bono advice. We do a lot of work on reconciliation in the Aboriginal community, and we also have a lot of focus on
2: environmental issues as well. Yes, and we also do work with, with PIAC, which is the Public Interest Advocacy Centre, uh, specifically with their police accountability section. So there's a whole buffet of different pro bono options you can pick depending on what you're particularly interested in. And it's a big part of uh, what we make clear to graduates
1: about their offering should they join Allen's. So if that's something that does interest you I'd really recommend you check out the website because there's lots of information about all the initiatives we have on there.
3: Awesome. How does the process of commercial litigation unfold?
1: Oh so I think you know sometimes you do get that traditional scenario where a client will ring you on Monday morning and say, you know, I've been served with a claim. Where do we go from here? Can you help me? But that probably happens less than people think. And I think, you know, people might have a concept of the litigation or disputes team in a law firm coming in when a claim has been initiated and court proceedings are, in fact, a reality. But actually, disputes can... You know, similar way for several months or even years, and it actually a lot of what we do as litigators or disputes lawyers is working with clients in the run-up to something that may boil over into litigation or arbitration. So we'll be writing letters. For our clients to send in their own name, um, but bearing in mind managing the future potential risks of litigation and making sure that rights are preserved, that we're adhering to contractual notice provisions, etc., and basically putting our clients in the best, safest possible situation that if it does eventuate into litigation, we've we'll protected them and set that situation up as well as we can, and that it can be managed really efficiently from that point onwards.
4: Are there any large differences between the commercial approach against the traditional approach that law students might be more familiar with
2: the way that i found it in law school is when you get given a legal problem you assess it on the claims of the legal problem kind of like when you're writing an exam examining a fact scenario and that's definitely part of the job but it's just one element of it because when you're actually practicing law you also have to consider things like commerciality you have to, a lot of time, assess the risks. So it's not just, was this an offense, was this not an offense, it's also, is this gonna be risky? And then also, if what someone's asking you is actually going to fall outside the law, are there ways that you can fix it so that it won't? So it's not just a yes, no, cut or dry, it's more of a consideration um, in the context of an operating business rather than in an exam.
1: Yeah so a lot of our work is advisory as, as Dan said and you know I think the way I normally describe the difference with litigation or disputes and transactional law, commercial law to um, to students would be well in a transaction you're both working to achieve the same outcome but just to put your clients in the best um, protective position and to strike the best deal. So it's a fairly collaborative process and it's touch wood, normally pretty friendly. Whereas obviously disputes is where you're you kind of have a completely uh, opposite interest, but that doesn't mean, as uh, Dan said, that there's not also an advisory piece to that to avoid getting to litigation in the first place.
2: I think also in a law student setting, things like case strategy and how you're actually going to argue, just don't come into it, what you're going to emphasize, what you're not going to run, what you're going to um, cons- like consent to on the other side, so you're not going to contest these facts, you're going to contest this fact, uh, and that is a whole different element of managing a legal matter which you don't really get in law school.
4: Yeah, that is really interesting. So you have to kind of consider many, many more options than you would ordinarily need to if you're just in law school doing an exam with a set of facts. And I imagine the facts would also be a lot more dynamic. Yeah. <laughs> because
2: they can be contested. Yeah. So it's not just you're given a narration and, and so apply a legal analysis. It's like what, what actually did happen. Often it's not clear. And and so, one of the first things you'll do in litigation is try and work out what actually happened.
3: Do you think that those other elements that you spoke of should be taught at law school?
2: I think that's an interesting question. Um, There is obviously an advantage of of teaching legal analysis at Mm -hmm. law school, and law school is never going to replace actually working in practice, but it might be helpful. I think a lot of unis now do placements at Local legal centers and other locations like that, and that kind of might be a way to get in because it's getting practical experience through university. But I'm not really sure what you think.
1: Yeah, I think that's it's a very interesting point. I think there there is no substitute for the core legal modules. That everyone has to study your contract, your tort, um, federal, administrative, um, etc., criminal. There's no substitute for that, but then there probably is a debate to be had, a wider question um, as to whether and to what extent people need to drill down into the academic or jurisprudential angles of those different subjects and disciplines if, and obviously the caveat is if, they intend to go into practicing
3: corporate commercial law. What was your first time in court like?
1: Oh, pretty nerve-wracking. I actually, my very, very first in court was when I was a fairly um, young and experienced grad but I was only six months into my my gradship or my traineeship as we would call it and we had to go to court to the crown court in London um, for a criminal matter actually and in that instance we were um, at my previous firm we were defending an individual which is really unusual because normally we obviously at Allen's we would act for big banks big institutions corporates um, so yeah, it was absolutely terrifying, um, but uh, you know, the thing to bear in mind for um, for solicitors when they attend court is um, it's unusual but not impossible that you'll actually be doing the advocacy. So uh, we normally engage a barrister to do advocacy for our clients, um, the matters we handle are incredibly complex and generally it's better to have uh, a top silk handle the advocacy and then that allows us at Allens to focus on the case strategy, um, the evidence, the case theory and managing and project managing the dispute generally. So although, yes, it's pretty scary and you are definitely very much switched on, even though you're not doing the the talking to the judge, it's probably not uh, quite as terrifying as you might imagine.
3: So did it get easier or is the process still really intimidating?
1: I personally think it's still quite intimidating. Like going to court is incredibly um, adrenaline-filled. Mm. It's the culmination of many, many months of intensive work, and um, even though you are not doing that advocacy, or that's pretty unusual, I would say, um, you still have to be very much switched on. So it's at any trial and any hearing I've ever been to, there are multiple instances throughout the sitting, which is you know the time in front of the judge where the barrister will turn around and, and take instructions from the solicitor they want to confirm a point should i make that admission um, could you confirm that evidentiary point um, so there's a lot of literal note passing between solicitors and barristers on things so you have to be incredibly uh, switched on and engaged um, so it, it, a day in court can be quite tiring actually for being um, so switched on but it's it's a really thrilling process i think and it's obviously one of things I find most gratifying about um, being a litigator as opposed to another kind of corporate lawyer. Yeah. What
2: do you think? I think that's right. Um, being in court, especially when you're a, a junior lawyer, is everything Lucy just said, where because you're sort of, you're the person normally as a junior that'll be going through documents, kind of pulling order out of chaos, and then when did this happen, what happened, wherever, you're very, probably the most familiar with all of these little minutiae if there's a question and the barrister turns around and says, Oh, actually what did happen here or say something's put to a witness in, in cross examination and then you have to find the document or find the evidence to clarify and then get it up to the counsel, it can be very exciting and, and tense and it's a time for you to kind of reveal that, Oh, this is my familiarity with everything. Yeah. Yeah, and it
1: can actually be your time to shine. Exactly, in way, you know yeah. even though you're not doing in wake and the solicitors are still very much involved.
4: So how many issues actually go to litigation um, or how many end at mediation?
1: I would say it's possibly, it's hard to quantify but I would maybe say it's Mm 50-50. Matters can settle at any stage, they can obviously settle right at the beginning and that's ideal before either parties incur any significant costs. They can settle midway through a matter, so for example, after you've done discovery, you might have acquired documents that um, illustrate that your client's case um, isn't as strong as you thought it was, or conversely, that it's much stronger than you even anticipated at the outset, and that can be a good time to settle. You know, there's matters I've had that have settled right at the 11th and a half hour. So after the whole trial is played out, maybe one side thought that things didn't go so well for them and their witnesses, and they're gonna make a last gasp attempt. So sometimes you can have an entire trial play out, or that does happen, but it's unusual.
2: I think matters can also go to mediation and then go to litigation afterwards, because mediation's not a short sure thing. And, and often it, it's good to have evidence that before you actually go to court, you actually tried to settle outside court. Or resolve the issue in some way before you've had to take it from yeah. a judge.
1: And, and nowadays, um, courts will uh, really strongly expect and will often want to see evidence that the parties have tried to engage sensibly in a mediation um, before proceeding to litigation. And, and parties might be sanctioned if they've unreasonably refused to do so. So they may get uh, less costs award or get an in- inflated costs uh, award against them than they might otherwise have if they've launched straight on the offensive and just served a claim.
2: And a lot of um, commercial contracts now have provisions or if there is a dispute it's to be settled in this way which could either be mediation or an arbitration which is final but some other method besides going to court as just the first step so it's not always your default. So there is an increased focus
1: um, I think at a policy level but also institutionally between all the the clients and entities that we work for uh, an increase focus to avoid litigation and to try those, um, quote unquote, softer methods of resolving the conflict first.
4: And then that sort of leads us to our next question then. Which option is more beneficial for you and the client and are there benefits of keeping it out of the public arena?
1: Yeah, there can be. Uh, Confidentiality is um, understandably uh, a big issue for a lot of our clients. Uh, and that's one reason why parties might prefer arbitration over litigation. Arbitration is confidential; litigation, obviously, not. Um, you know, the press will often seize on a big kind of brand name, household name, uh, being in court over a matter, and and when that happens, the press might seize on that, and then the public will consequently seize on that matter, and it will get blown out of proportion because litigation is actually a fact of life for every big business and claims will always happen. And actually, as a matter of commercial reality within the business, the litigation might be um, a minor part of what they're dealing with at that moment in time, and it might be in relative terms, quite low value. Having said that, um, all of our clients, I've never had a client that you know um, hasn't wanted to vigorously defend a spurious claim, and rightfully so. So um, while you know, there's definitely merit in exploring mediation and settlement, At the end of the day, um, parties understandably feel very strongly about their legal and contractual rights and they want to defend those.
2: I think also um, litigation can often decide a contentious point of law. If they then contest that and then are vindicated, then it can provide confidence that what they're doing is entirely within the balance of regulation.
3: What is your role in the courtroom? Is it always high adrenaline and high stakes suits style?
1: Uh, no, it's it, ignore what you see on U.S. TV. So you don't whip out the smoking gun document um, dramatically and you're not allowed to ambush a witness with you know, questions on matters that aren't covered in their witness statement. So um, compared to what you might see on suits, it's very diplomatic and civilised and the, the emphasis is on um, time efficiency and cost efficiency. And parties will be penalised if they run or conduct their litigation in... Um, an unnecessarily aggressive style that just causes both parties to incur more, more costs and they will be sanctioned for that. But having said that, there are going to be plenty of drama opening and closing arguments from, from barristers are often like a sight to behold and everyone is on the edge of their seats I think during witness cross-examination.
2: Yes, yes. I think it's entirely possible that a witness that you thought would perform very well under examination will not, and then another witness that you thought probably wouldn't do as well, the Shines, and that can actually swing a case quite quickly. It's very tense, uh, as well as a lawyer, because you have quite a personal stake in, you, you've been working on this matter often from the beginning of the matter, now you've gotten to the trial, and you've seen the whole evolution of everything up to that point, and then something could happen in the next half an hour which could make or break, this this whole thing, and it's really it's great to watch because you see like the product of all your work and it's also very exciting because you don't know what's going to happen. Mm. Yeah,
1: And it's the um, in a trial it's actually the real human element of the dispute comes into play uh, because everything else will be framed around pleadings and around um, legal arguments in relation to those pleadings whereas this is where the real story unfolds and, and, and you get to the, the truth of the matter. Uh, so it's really exciting.
3: And um, what's your role in preparing the witness? for those cross-examinations.
1: Obviously the most important thing is that a witness just has to tell the truth about their recollection of the matter. So when we work with witnesses to get them ready for a trial, uh, we don't run them through any questions, we don't ask them what they will propose to answer on any particular point. It's just drawing to their attention what are the issues in dispute here, and what documents might you need to navigate those questions truthfully and accurately.
4: And what are the key skills required and the pressures of your role?
1: ownership and taking initiative is a really vital uh, thing and if I attend a conference call with a partner and a client and various homework tasks come out of that for Allen's, it's my responsibility to take those away um, to get on with it start actioning them maybe delegating is appropriate and to work through them and what the partner wants to see are drafts on his or her desk for sign-off and approval without further discussion you know nobody's going to come and, and check up on me um, nobody's going to chase me for anything Um, obviously that doesn't happen on day one and you gradually very slowly work up to that level of responsibility but it does start, those skills of initiative and ownership have to be in place from a very early stage and the grads I admire most and see the most potential in are the people that will come to a meeting with me you know, without any prompting, they will say, right, so what I thought, I've made an action list and what I think needs to happen next is A, B, C and I'll do one, two and three and I'm going to, if it's okay with you, talk to X, Y and Z about doing the other angles. And that's really important and really appreciated because everyone has to keep driving things forward and making progress and, and keeping that efficiency always on time and cost. I think another few skills I would say is that you know, we need to be nimble. Our clients are international. Um, they have uh, global disputes. Um, they can be incredibly complex. So we might need to work across our network with colleagues in different um, Allens or Linklaters offices. But the flexibility works both ways. So there is absolutely um, the recognition and encouragement that you're welcome to work from home when you need to. Um, you really need to not just understand the law that you have been taught at university in your core modules. Um, you need to be attuned to how it's developing and constantly evolving to keep abreast of developments and case law developments. And beyond the law, you really need to understand your client's business. And that's what we mean when we say that students and grads need to think about being commercial. Anticipate and understand what impact our advice will have practically speaking. Um, is it achievable for them to do is it commercially uh, reasonable for them to do the things we recommend and our advice we have to constantly bear that in mind for our clients their legal division is just a small part of the overall business in the law firm the lawyers are the center of everything. but that is actually very much the opposite with our clients
2: uh, I think at a the entry-level stage the particular skills you need would be the ability to learn on the job as well coming in fresh, you are often tasked with things that you haven't attempted before, and so if your capacity to learn and pick up as you go is very important. And also having the humility to do a draft and accept that it's still a learning process, and that you're not going to be like truly a master at this kind of work for another few years. And it's a great feeling to actually be working and feeling yourself picking up competence, which doing a task which maybe two months ago was very difficult and now it's oh this is that was very for me go on and, and feeling yourself getting better it's a great feeling
1: the other thing you asked about was I guess some of the pressures um, so what I would say is sometimes turnaround times need to be really fast and you can be juggling a lot of different matters for different clients that have competing deadlines so that's always tension. so you need stamina some days um, but you know the nice thing about litigation is that it naturally ebbs and flows, it has peaks and troughs. So you're not always in trial, you're not always preparing for a mediation. Um, so it naturally has different life cycles or phases, and there'll be a lot of downtime in between those busy periods, which is really good. And even when it is busy, I think when it's busy, it's typically because you're on the cusp of trial or settlement or an arbitration. And that can be also, even though it's the busiest time, it's the most exciting time in, in that matters life cycle as well. And it's really nice to be working in a big team, at a big, you know, really well resourced firm where you can all flex around each other and make sure that everyone's, you know, got um, the support they need and that, that people get, you know, time off where they need it and that nobody's missing any family commitments or personal commitments and things so that you can all work around each other. And that's one thing I really love about working for a firm rather than being a sort of lone wolf um, as a sole practitioner or maybe being a barrister or something, I really appreciate that.
2: I found uh, that most of the times when I've been quite busy have been the times when I've been tasked with something where I've had more responsibility than typically, So someone will give you something and you'll be busy because you need to get that done, and it's your responsibility. So there's a flip side of this is a great chance kind of seize the initiative and, and deliver something good.
1: Yeah, that's really true. That's very true. I mean, ultimately, it's obviously um, a demanding career in general. Lawyers um, are obviously uh, busy people with a lot of demands on them. And so the one thing I would say that it's really important and is really kind of well-entrenched at uh, Allens is, is that your mental health is really important. So we had um, Charlie Jacobs, who is the managing partner of Linklater's, in our office last week. And he gave us I think fantastic analogy, and he said, you know, think about your mobile phone. You get that kind of warning light saying it's five or ten percent left, and you wouldn't let that happen to your phone, so it won't let it happen to you. So it was a very supportive culture in recognising that we do have quite busy um, demands on us, and, and that it's really important that everyone's well looked after and can get downtime where they need it too.
3: Have you ever had to deal with another side that is particularly difficult, um, and how did you deal with it?
2: Um, so it's the Allen's approach, and, and the firm prides itself on this approach, to always treat the other side with respect, and then always be very calm and professional. In very neutral. Very neutral in all correspondence and all uh, conduct.
1: I think yeah, it's exactly as you said, you have to be very um, professional, very neutral, because everything that you say or do in a litigation um, can be used against your client when it comes to a, a cost award. If any aspect of your conduct has been unreasonable in any way, then your cost award may be reduced accordingly, or you may face a bigger cost award against your client. I've had, even when I was very junior grad, I'd had letters or emails that I had penned um, that ended up in the trial bundle, and everyone turn to tab 33, and there you go, that's my email and my letter. So it's really crucial that everything you say and do um, is something you will stand by, not just tomorrow, but in six months' time when you're in the heat of trial and, and tempers are high. And the other thing is that the legal industry is actually pretty small, and your conduct again will come back to haunt you if you've
2: been an unreasonable opponent to someone. I think Obama said when he was president that he assumed every message he ever sent would end up on the front page of the New York Times. And I think our approach is that every message we send could end up in front of a judge or a Chief Justice or one of the Supreme Court or in front of anyone. So it's always good to be professional.
3: Have you found that you are able to keep up the hobbies that you had before you started at the firm?
1: You know, I think it's actually, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's an office job and it occupies you for most of your time Monday to, to Friday. But you should always bear in mind that there needs to be balance, so you need to look after yourself. I unfortunately don't have any interesting hobbies, and I can't profess to being a reader in my spare time because I feel like I read too much at work. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, I think it is absolutely possible. We've got a lot of people that do some really interesting cool hobbies, you know, horse riding, mountaineering, climbing, bouldering, um, sailing and stuff. And and everyone, there's time for everyone to have their kind of offline time and their, their kind of life outside work as well. And that's really crucial, and it will actually make you uh, much better focused, happier, healthier at work anyway. I think that's
2: right It's. it also depends on the time frame that you're looking at if you're looking at it for two years for example and you might be able to say oh I'm not going to plan for any other interests but if you're looking at it for the next decade or if you actually want a long term career in the law you need to plan out how you're going to be able to manage your life because you're, otherwise you're just going to burn out and you're not going to be able to maintain consistency because it's not about being a lawyer in the next week it's about being a good lawyer for the next decade.
4: Do you have any general advice for lawyers wishing to become involved with or learn more about your work?
1: Yeah so in, in an ideal world a summer clerkship or work experience with Ballester would be fantastic but you know super conscious that that's incredibly competitive and difficult. On a you know, more real level, I think you should think closely about the resources that you do have at your disposal, even if you don't recognise that you have them already. So all of your lecturers and tutors at university will have studied at law school themselves, many of their colleagues will have gone on to practice in, uh, you know, in law firms um, in Sydney, and, and maybe they could put you in touch. You know, there's no harm in saying, do you know anyone that works in criminal law? competition law disputes in Sydney that might be willing to have a coffee with me on their lunch break one day or maybe I could just drop them a call. And I think that talking to people in the industries you think you're interested in is the best way to understand what your future would look like in practice, doing that kind of work yourself. You know, if the offer is there, ask to speak to that colleague that works in an area even though it's not something you immediately have your attention or focus on because I find that speaking... And I found when I was student grad level that speaking to people about what they did sometimes helped me understand and refine what it was I was not looking for in in my own career and helped me anticipate and understand what aspects of of law I didn't want to get involved in as much as the ones I thought I did. It's also reading a lot to understand the kind of cases and the kind of clients we work for. And nowadays I think there's probably better access for students to information about law firms. So, we have um, an Allen's Confidential podcast that's run by our graduates, and that's really fun and interesting, and it's pitched to exactly the right level, You know, produced by grads for, for students and grads. You should also look at their websites generally, because firms will publish internet updates about um, significant matters or transactions they've worked on that will give you as close as possible an understanding of what life would be like in a, in a corporate law firm until the stage where you manage to get some work
2: experience or a, a summer placement yourself. Yeah, I think that's right. I think every uh, bit of experience you can get is an asset, especially while you're at university. To be able to know where in the legal market you want to go, so it's good to keep track of what's happening. That's a, that's a great way of keeping up to date with what's going on but also making it an informed choice of where you eventually want to end up and what kind of practice you want to do. When you
1: come to apply for a clerkships or grad positions, you can't fake an, under, an understanding of the issues that the legal industry faces and what's important to our clients overnight. It's not something you're going to be able to prepare for in the 24 hours before hopefully your interview, so it's something that you should be doing alongside all your studies to keep abreast of
2: that. Yes, it's like As we spoke about before, how being a a graduate or or just coming into the profession at all has a whole different skill set to just being a law student.
1: And two other tips I would give is that there are probably uh, opportunities at university to volunteer with legal advice clinics, and no, that's not going to um, give you first hand experience of the kind of issues our clients grapple with at Allen's or another big firm. That will give you really significant. Meaningful experience in diplomacy, drafting, negotiation skills, matter management, and, and don't un- underestimate the value of that experience for you. The other thing I would say is uh, follow chambers, so all the different barrister sets publish case summaries, and they will obviously be focusing on the legal issues at the heart of the dispute and to the extent they set any precedent or raised any interesting questions which may be subject to appeal. And again, just um, if you keep abreast of those, you will understand the kind of disputes, the, the actual legal nature of the disputes that we and our clients deal with, and that will be really informative in coming across as, as well-rounded um, and, and well-developed as a, as a law student, as applying for work
2: experience. Sure. I think if you're particularly interested in litigation or disputes, uh, working for a barrister while you're at university is a very good option because you pick up great legal research skills. You can see the differentiated roles between barristers and solicitors so you get an understanding of who is doing what and come up to a trial you get uh, typically a lot of court time and then you may depending on your level and who you're working for you may get chances to have a crack at first drafts of things maybe submissions or or even just discussing a matter with um, someone who's very senior and getting that kind of one-on-one time with a very senior person especially when and typically in your early 20s is quite rare and it's a very good opportunity and you can learn a lot and then if you, if you want to come into practice as a solicitor you'll have a whole bunch of skills which which is going to serve you well
1: yeah and if you are focusing on disputes or litigation arbitration then do your research carefully on what firms you, you want to apply to or get work experience clerkships at Um, because although I think all of the big firms in Sydney offer litigation, some offer it more than others, Um, some it may be a kind of complement to their wider practice. They may be more focused on corporate or banking. Um, So do your research and make sure you're targeting the right kind of firms that align with what you're looking for from your partnership, and then eventually your grantship.
0: So there you go. That was the episode. Huge thanks to Lucy and Daniel from Allens for agreeing to be interviewed as well as Sarah and the team from Allens for organising this interview and helping to get this project off the ground. Special thanks to last year's SOuls podcast team. Alana, Annie, Chloe, Jonathan, Julia, Justin, Maddie and Vivian. You guys have been amazing. And thanks to you for listening. Footnotes will be returning this year, so make sure you search for Sydney University Law Society or Solves on Facebook, Instagram and wherever you get your podcasts.